ARE Study Guide Podcast. Hello, friends. I hope your studying is going well. I hope you are enjoying your day wherever this podcast may find you. And most importantly, I hope you are really excited about diving into the owner contractor agreement. A101. This contract is intended to be used with A201, the general conditions, which we will dive into in the next episode. First off, I would recommend reading these documents for yourself. I think it's very important to be familiar with them because in your own practice, you're going to have to read these agreements. It's important to be well-versed in what they contain before anyone starts messing with them, before the contractor owner, or even your own architecture firm starts taking things out and adding to them. You should be familiar with how they are in their original form. So I'm just going to give you a rundown of the content of this contract. The first section is called contract documents, and it just tells you what's included in the contract agreement. And that's going to be the A101 agreement, general conditions, supplementary conditions, the drawings, the specifications, addenda, and modifications. Addenda are anything that was issued prior to the contract being signed. Any changes to the project that were made before the contract was signed are addenda. Modifications are changes that happen after the contract is signed. The contract states that the A101 is the full agreement between the owner and contractor. Anything that was said before the contract was signed is considered void if it is not included in the contract. So you can't go back later and say, oh, but you said you were going to do this. If it's not in the contract, it doesn't matter. That's why these contracts are gold. That's why we need to read them and know what our responsibilities are, what the contractor's responsibilities are, what the owner's responsibilities are, It's all there. There's no guessing. There's no he said, she said. If it's not in the contract, it's not real. Section two is about the work and the scope. And it says, unless otherwise indicated in the contract documents, the contractor is assumed to be responsible for executing the full scope of the project. They are responsible for everything required to build the building. Section three is about the project start date and substantial completion. There are three ways for setting the date that the project will begin. You could say that it's going to be the date that the contract is signed. It can be a date when the owner issues a notice to proceed, or it can be a specific date or an event that will trigger the start of the project, which I don't know. It could be maybe like receiving a permit could trigger the start of the project. I don't know what it is, but you could say in the contract, this event means that the project begins. And then the contract time is the project's duration. The project's duration is from the date of commencement or the project start date to substantial completion. That is the project's duration, the contract time, and that is very, very important. Because if you have liquidated damages 
any day over that duration is going to accrue liquidated damages. Substantial completion can either be a certain number of days from the project start date. You could say like 180 days after the project start date. That'd be a very short project, but you could say that. It could be a specific date, like the owner needs to move in to the new school August 1st, so you need to have substantial completion uh, maybe June 1st. All right, let's talk about substantial completion a little more because this is a really big deal. So substantial completion is when the building is complete enough to be used for its intended purpose. So it doesn't mean that it's entirely finished. You know, you might still need some touch-up paint. Um, You might be missing some trim. You know, you'll have a punch list, but overall the building can be used. It can be occupied legally. Um, If it's a building like a manufacturing center, you'd be able to start manufacturing the items. If it's a house, it means that you can live in it. Substantial completion is when the project is complete enough to be used for its intended purpose. The only time that this is going to be different is when you have a core and shell project because core and shell isn't going to have any of those interior spaces finished out yet. So substantial completion is going to be different. But for most projects other than core and shell, substantial completion is when the project can be used for its intended purpose. Substantial completion is going to mark the end of the project schedule, the end date for occurring liquidated damages. Substantial completion marks the beginning of the period for the statute of limitations for any errors and omissions for the architect's work. So, um, I don't know, it could be 10 years, the statute of limitations for if the architect made a mistake, 10 years for a lawsuit to get filed. That date is going to be started from substantial completion date. And the contractor's warranty is going to begin at the date of substantial completion. How substantial completion is marked is the contractor is going to notify the architect that they have reached substantial completion. And the contractor is going to develop a punch list, which is a list of the remaining items that need to be done. So they're acknowledging, yes, we know this wall still needs to get painted. Yes, we know that window doesn't have trim on it. And it's a list of everything that needs to get done. So the architect is going to go to the job site and they're going to verify to make sure that the project is substantially completed and they're going to look at that punch list that the contractor gave them and add any additional items that they believe still need to get either corrected or added. If the architect goes to the job site and finds that the work does not match the contract documents, though, they need to tell the contractor that work needs to be corrected before the project is going to be considered substantially complete. The stuff that is allowed to be remaining needs to be minor stuff and it can't be deviations from the contract documents. Again, it makes sense that maybe not all the trims installed, maybe a wall is not painted. Um, maybe something got dinged and it needs to be filled in, but it needs to be minor stuff and it can't be like big deviations from the actual contract documents. The fourth section talks about the contract sum. The contract sum is the total amount of money that the owner is going to pay the contractor 
for building the project. In this section is where alternates will be identified. Each alternate will have its price. Alternates are elements that the owner can choose to add on later to the project. So the contract sum is the base amount for the project, and then an alternate is an amount for any additional elements that they can choose to add later if they decide that they want to add to the project's budget. This part of the contract will also identify allowances in their cost and unit prices with their cost. For unit prices, there's going to be a cap on the maximum quantity of units that are anticipated. If more units are actually used, or if they realize later that more units will be used, the cost per unit can be negotiated. This portion of the contract is also going to identify the cost of liquidated damages and the terms and conditions for their accrual. Let's talk a little more about alternates, allowances, and unit cost. So an alternate is going to split off a part of the project from the overall contract cost. This could be a component or element such as adding an additional deck to the building. An alternate could also be a material choice. Maybe if you're going to choose between marble instead of tile. It could be about the quality level, such as choosing to specify a level 5 finish drywall instead of a level 4 finish. Or it could be a quantity issue. It could be choosing to have 10 windows instead of 5 windows. So alternates are going to be an additional amount or a deduction from the base bid. The base bid is the contract cost without any alternates. An add alternate is an option that would increase the project's cost. A deduct alternate is an option that would decrease the project's cost. So then we also have allowances. An allowance functions similarly to an alternate in the sense that it's money that is identified in the contract that can be added on to the contract sum later if the owner chooses to, but it's different. With an alternate, you know exactly what it is that you may add or take away from the project. With an allowance, this element isn't going to be designed yet, or maybe it's not even really identified yet what it might be. An example of an allowance could be, you know that you want an outdoor element for the public to enjoy and use, but you don't know what that is. You haven't really thought about it, but the owner might say, I'm comfortable with setting aside $150,000 for that element. So that's an allowance. So when the contractors are bidding the project, they will all have that same allowance on their bids. It'll, they'll have their base bid and then they'll say the allowance, outdoor element, $150,000. Also in this category of elements that can add to the contract cost are unit price elements. Unit price is when you can't really identify the total scope of doing the work of part of a project, uh, but you know you're going to need to do it. And there's repetitive units of some type. This could be like if you're building an, um, let's say like a brick wall outside and you're not sure how tall or long the brick wall will be, but the contractor can say, we're going to do a cost per brick of $10 per brick for this wall. 
Um, this also works for uh, like bulk materials such as like soil or uh, asphalt, where you might not know how much soil you'll need. Maybe it's by like cubic yard. Uh, so there's a unit price per cubic yard. So unit price is when you don't know the total quantity, but it's a repetitive element. So you put a price per unit for that work. Section five of the owner contractor agreement talks about payments. So progress payments are going to be provided to the contractor typically monthly. The standard contract says that they will be monthly, um, but the period could be any pay period that you want to identify in the contract. And a progress payment is going to cover the cost for the work that has been completed in that pay period, the cost of any change directives, the cost of any materials that were purchased or equipment purchased or rented. Progress payments may be reduced if the work that was completed was incorrect, defective, and any retainers that are taken out. So a retainer is a percentage of the construction cost that is withheld each pay period. And this amount of money is used to kind of just give the contractor incentive to stay on the job. Um, if the contractor was paid in full each month and say they started like having disagreements with the owner, they might just be like, well, screw you. I'm just going to leave this job. But by taking a retainer, you kind of hold something over their head in a sense. You say, say you're halfway through the job and each pay period you've been collecting 10% as a retainer. So, you know, you might have a million dollars that the contractor is owed and they will receive when they finish the job. Actually, not when they finish, they'll receive it at substantial completion. But it gives a contractor incentive to stay on the job. So the process for uh, progress payments actually involves the architect. So the contractor is going to issue an application for payment to the architect. And then the architect will go and verify that the amount of work that the contractor is saying that they've done is true. This isn't an exhaustive uh, search or report. It's not the architect's job to fully inspect the contractor's work. But when they sign the application for payment, they're saying to the best of their knowledge, the contractor's request is valid, that they have completed whatever portion of the work. And the amount that they get paid is based on the schedule of values. So when the contractor is awarded the job, they are going to develop a schedule of values, which says for each item of work, how much it'll cost to do that portion of work. And so the architect is going to reference the schedule of values to make sure that the amount the contractor is requesting lines up with the schedule of values that they received in the beginning of the project. So if the architect agrees with the application for payment, they will issue a certificate for payment to the owner. The last payment that the contractor receives is the final payment. And that is going to cover the remaining contract sum. And once the architect issues that final certificate for payment, it also in a way terminates the architect's contract too. The only thing that architect will have left after that final certificate for payment 
is that they'll need to do a site visit with the owner within one year um, just to make sure that everything is still functioning well and help them address any maintenance issues or any issues that have arisen within the first year. The architect goes to meet with the owner, so then the architect can help the owner reach out to the contractor because there's a one-year period after the project is complete for the contractor's warranty. So the architect goes there with the owner. They see if there's anything that they want to claim under that warranty so that the contractor can fix it within that first year. So in the contract, there will be a time frame established. Let's say that 15 days before the payment date, the contractor needs to submit the application for payment to the architect. And then there's a payment date. Unless the contract says otherwise, the owner has seven days to pay the contractor. There's a payment date, but there's a little flexibility. They have a week if they need it. But then after that, if they're late on paying, they have to pay the contractor with interest for every day that they're late. And the interest rate is going to be established in the contract, um, but it also might be set by the local laws depending on the jurisdiction. Section six talks about dispute resolution. We'll talk more about this um, when we look at the general conditions. But basically what the AIA contracts say is that if there's a dispute, the first course of action is mediation, which means you go to a third party and you try to work it out. Whatever a mediator says is basically just a recommendation and the parties can agree uh, with the mediator's recommendation and follow that course of action. But if they don't, they will choose to go to arbitration or litigation. So litigation just means court. Arbitration is similar to mediation where a third party makes the decision, but it's kind of like court in the sense that whatever they say is what happens. Whereas mediation, you choose what you do after you hear the mediator's response. In arbitration, the arbitrator will tell you, this is my decision and this is what is going to happen. And arbitration is binding. You can't appeal the decision. But litigation, when you go to court, you can actually appeal that decision. But litigation is very costly and takes a lot longer than arbitration. So in the contract, the owner and contractor will preemptively decide if there's an issue. Are they going to go to arbitration or litigation? Or they can specify another option in this section of the contract. This section is also going to talk about the initial decision maker, which is typically the architect. The initial decision maker is the person that when there's first an issue, when an issue first arises and either party wants to submit a claim and a claim is any change to the contract, either you want, you're asking for an extension on the schedule, that'd be the contractor most likely asking, or you want more money or you want the other party to reimburse you or something you submit a claim and you submit that claim to the architect because they are typically the initial decision maker. Um, you can have another party in this section of the contract. You can identify a different person to be the initial decision maker, but, um, and unless someone else is identified, it's the architect and the architect receives the claim and they make a decision. So, uh, if there's a dispute about something doesn't look right to the owner, and the contractor says, well, your drawings 
show it that way. And the owner's like, well, that's not what I want. They will bring that issue to the architect and the architect has to, to the best of their ability, provide a non-biased solution for them. They can say, I need more information and request more information from either party. They can get um, the help of an outside professional who specializes in the issue, in the area if it's a specialized issue. They can say, I'm too biased. I can't give you a non-biased response. Or they make a decision. And then if either party doesn't agree with the architect's decision, that's when it goes to mediation. And then if they don't agree with mediation, that's when it goes to arbitration or litigation. I'm sure we're going to dive more into this in other episodes, so don't get too hung up on it right now. If that didn't make sense, feel free to reach out to me online and I can help clarify that a little bit more. All right. So section seven of the owner contractor agreement is about terminating or suspending the contract. Um, We're going to dive more into this and the general conditions, but in this section, this is where if the owner chooses to terminate the contract, meaning they choose to stop the project or they choose to stop working with that contractor, they need to pay the contractor a fee. And that fee is going to be described in this section of the contract. Section eight is miscellaneous provisions. This is where the owner and contractor's representatives will be identified. The owner and contractor can only change their representative with a minimum 10-day notice to the other party. Insurance and bonds information will be in here. And the requirements for submitting electronic files. The AIA document E203 strongly encouraged to be used for electronic files. You know, we all have our own naming conventions when it comes to our files. And to have everyone on the same page for everything related to how we send and share electronic files, the AIA document E203 can and should be used. And then section nine lists all the contract documents that are part of this agreement. So that includes the agreement itself, A101. It also includes A101 exhibit A, which is the insurance and bond information A202, which are the general conditions, which we are going to look at in the next episode. E203, building information modeling and digital data. And then it'll outline all of the drawings that are part of the contract documents. So with their sheet numbers, their sheet titles, and their issue dates. The specifications, all the sections, the titles, and the dates they were issued. And if any addenda were issued. Those will be listed. AIA E204 is for sustainable projects that may or may not be used. The sustainability plan may or may not be used. And then supplementary and other conditions. Uh, Note that any information that was given to contractors during the bidding, such as the instructions to bidders, invitations to bid, those are not included in the contract documents. Bidding information is not part of the contract documents. And then the owner and contractor signed the agreement. And that is A101, the owner-contractor agreement. 
Next, we are going to dive in to the general conditions. That is a hefty contract, but a lot of really good information that applies to both the contractor and the architect's roles and responsibilities is in there. So it's a goodie. Take a break, grab a coffee, and maybe I'll see you on the other side real soon. Bye.